Hey, what is going on? Welcome to this episode number 127 of Life and Lessons. This week, you're going to hear a conversation I had with Ben West. Ben is a mental health campaigner and author of the book, This Book Could Save Your Life. Now, just a quick heads up, this conversation has themes of suicide throughout. And so if that's something you'd rather not listen to, now is a really good time to stop and check out one of the other 126 episodes that you'll find just below this one. But if you're still here, in the next hour, you're going to learn what it's really like to be part of a family affected by suicide and how the effects are felt by literally hundreds, if not thousands of people when somebody takes their own life. How unfounded feelings of guilt and shame ended up being the catalyst Ben needed to go on to do some pretty remarkable campaigning, bringing him face to face with policymakers and prime ministers along the way. What needs to change for all of us to be better at encouraging and facilitating conversations that can help save lives of our friends and family? What his journey has taught Ben about himself and other people and so much more. Now, this conversation for me is remarkable because unlike anyone I've ever met before, Ben has this incredible ability to take a difficult subject and speak about it so plainly. And in doing so, he's cutting through the the platitudes that are often thrown around on this subject. And during this conversation, he delivers real, important, actionable advice. I know that you're definitely going to get a lot from this conversation. And please, if you do, definitely share this one around. Ben's advice is something that needs to be heard by everybody. But just before then, if you're new here, do make sure that you're subscribed to Life and Lessons on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is you're listening to this right now. And also do me a favor, just during this intro, head over to YouTube, search my name, Sean Spooner, and make sure that you're subscribed over on the YouTube as well. There are so many great conversations coming up between now and the end of the year in a 12 day period at the end of this month alone. I'm recording with four incredible guests, uh, Natasha DeTaran, who is the author of The Payoff, Luke Burgess, the author of Wanting, Carol Walker, of course you remember she was a BBC political journalist for something like 30 years. And she is the author of a book called Lobby Life. And of course, Tiago Forte, author of Building a Second Brain. Four really incredible guests coming up. I know you're going to enjoy them and I know you're going to enjoy this one. But in the meantime, here it is. Episode number 127 of Life and Lessons with Ben West. So Ben West, thank you for being here. Thank you so much for having me on. So today I think is going to be one of the more important conversations I've had on this podcast so far because both your story but also what you've gone on to do and how you're changing an entire narrative is really remarkable. But your story starts in quite an unremarkable place, right? So talk to me about that unremarkable upbringing. What was it like growing up? Yeah, growing up, I so I I, uh, I was born in uh, in Kent, um, which is uh, south of London. It's known as the Garden of England. It's very green. I, I'm actually there right now. I'm looking out over a field. It's all very green and and very wild. Um, and so I guess my upbringing was exactly that. Like I was a kid, um, one of three brothers with my family, all very very close, living this 
I'm going to use this word. It's like a feral life. <laughs> you know, you just go running in the fields and you go outside and you spend most, I spent most of my childhood outside with my friends, with my, with my brothers. Um, and that brings you very, very close to those people in your family. Um, but you absolutely right. It was so unremarkable. Um, apart from the odd broken bone that we <laughs> that we all suffered, it was it was a pretty unremarkable time, you know, in this beautiful part of the Kent countryside, running around having the time of our lives um, for most of you know most of my childhood, um, and then obviously as well, I'm sure we'll get into things started to change when we got into my adolescence and my teenage years, but yeah, unremarkable. It was, I mean, I say unremarkable like it's a bad thing. It was awesome. I absolutely loved it. It was just like living with entire freedom. For the first ten years of my life, it was it was it was an amazing time. And so, of course, our conversation today is going to be on the topic of mental health. And I think you say in your book, much like I share this experience, and I think most people can relate, that when you're a kid, when you're a teenager, mental health is this thing that you're kind of aware it's a thing, but it's almost this blind spot, right? We don't really know much about it. When did you first become aware of the the potential impacts of mental ill health? Wow. I mean, so it was bounced around this phrase, mental health. Um, I don't know when the first time I heard it. it must have been when I was about 14, 15 years old. It was probably brought up one time at school, um, but I'd never really understood it properly. No one had ever really sat down, and explained what that was or explained it in any depth or explained any of these mental illnesses or anything like that um, until my brother was diagnosed with clinical depression in September 2017 when he was 15 years old. And that was the first time anyone had actually very conf confrontationally gone, this is mental health. My mum sat me down and said, Sam has been diagnosed with clinical depression. And I just, I was on the receiving end of that. And that was the first time it sort of infiltrated my life in any way. But I had absolutely no idea what that was. I could not for the life of me understand how you could be diagnosed with being sad. Because for me, depression was you know, it was a, it was a emotion like, like sadness or like happiness or laughter. So I was like, how can you be diagnosed with clinical sadness? Like that doesn't, doesn't make sense. And so I put absolutely, and I, I put absolutely no thought to it at all. No thought to it at all. Um, until, um, January 21st, 2018, when Sam very, very unexpectedly, uh, took his own life. And that's when I realized the ball dropped and I was like, oh my God, this is, this is an issue you know something i didn't even think was a real thing <laughs> suddenly you know it became obvious that not only was it real what he was going through not only was it serious it was actually he was when my mum told me that that day i had no idea that she told me that he had a fatal diagnosis i didn't know that i got no idea but in reality that's exactly what happened um but that was the, that the sam when sam died that was the moment i realized how significant this issue was and so look, anyone who's listened to previous episodes of this podcast will know that, uh, for example, my conversation with Patrick Foster, my conversation with Ben Pearson, I'm shit at this next part, right? Because I, I always try and cleverly ask questions and there isn't any clever question to ask here, but I think it's important context for uh, kind of laying the foundations of what you've gone on to do since. So that date that you said, the 21st of January, 2018, tell me a bit about that day. Yeah. So when, so basically this day, 21st January, 2018, the day Sam died, it was, it was, is, will for the rest of my life be the absolute worst day of my life without a, without a single doubt in my mind. And no, I can pretty much guarantee that nothing will ever happen to me that's, that's that bad. It was awful, absolutely awful. And when you sort of tell people this and suicide, you know, it's a, it's a very difficult thing to imagine if you haven't experienced it yourself. 
when you tell people this story, a lot of people imagine the worst day of your life is obviously going to be, you know, I don't know, like apocalyptic and, and significant. And lots of things happen that are bad throughout the day. And it's going to almost have this atmosphere of something's going to happen wrong, like a, like a horror movie building up to a bad moment. No, it wasn't like that at all. It was actually, it was such a boring day. The only reason I remember that day is because of what happened. It was grey, it was drizzly, I did nothing, it was a Sunday. Um, I think I did some homework in the afternoon, I think it was physics homework. Um, and It was just so, such a nothing, nothing day. There was no charged atmosphere really during the day, there was nothing like that. It was not some preemptive thing that, that something was going to happen. Um, and then obviously, you know, we had dinner, my dad went off to work. So he, he left and went to work, um, uh, on the train. And so it was just me, my mum, and my two other two brothers and we had dinner and Sam was just really withdrawn. He didn't want to talk. He wasn't talking. He was like face down, looking at his plates, pushing food around his plate, you know? And, um, I just, I found that really annoying because partly because I'd had a great time with Sam growing up. Like we'd gotten so well, he was so funny. He was always had so much energy and throughout my childhood, you know, that, that experience of being feral and wild and running in the field, Sam was running next to me. Um, and it was usually him tripping me up and laughing at me, right? <laughs> That's our, that was our relationship. And so when he started to change and when he was secluded and at this moment in dinner, when he was just feeling sad and didn't want to talk to us, I found that annoying because I felt like he'd, he'd sort of, we'd lost, I'd lost that person that I, that I, used to really enjoy being around he was not that same person anymore and so i had an argument i, I had a, I, absolutely, I just lost it at him and i was, got quite annoyed at how he was how he was um behaving at dinner um and then we all went upstairs and uh, my mum went to check on him uh, just about just after nine o'clock at night um and she opened the door and uh, I, I just the screams her screams just filled the filled the entire house that was you know that noise rings through my mind all the time it's the it's a horrible, horrible memory. Um, and then obviously I open the door and I find, uh, find without a doubt, one of the most horrific things anyone can ever see. Um, and and that is that is when my whole life suddenly got flipped around and put on its head and shaken up and shattered to pieces. <laughs> um, but it was an unremarkable day, absolutely unremarkable day apart from that. And uh, we were speaking just before I hit record uh, about that fact, right? Because I listened to your audiobook a few days ago on the drive here to Wales. And there I was driving down the M6. And as strange as this sounds, if I can make this reflection, it wasn't so much necessarily just the story of what you and your family had gone through that day that affected me. It was that context that you speak of, right? It was the fact that it was an ordinary day and an ordinary week and everything else was unremarkable, both before the fact, but also in, in the, the detail. It's actually quite remarkable writing after the fact, right? In how you detail exactly what happened for the hours afterwards. Um, and so, I mean, much to the detriment of my drive, it, it quite emotion struck me for perhaps the first time ever that this stuff happens to normal people in normal situations in normal homes in normal families um in quite a a hidden way right it's silent in the fact that there were no real warning signs and it's also silent in the fact that um well you, you didn't know until after the fact right and how does that make you feel that you speak a lot about the statistics right six and a half thousand people each year take their own lives in the uk how does it make you feel that 
that's almost hidden, right? There's this undercurrent that is so hard to detect, even up until the point where it happens. You just don't know. Yeah, you've absolutely struck the nail on the head there. So many people, when we talk about suicide and mental health issues, um, depression, anxiety, um, schizophrenia, all of these things, most people have this opinion in their mind that it comes from a troubled upbringing or it comes from trauma or it comes from, you know, this awful thing that's happened. And I made that conscious decision to title um, one of the chapters, A Normal Family, because there was no, there was no trauma. There was, no, there was no abuse. There was nothing wrong. If you'd made a movie, it would be an incredibly boring start to that movie, right? Um, and that's what I think some people don't find really hard to understand. You don't, you don't have to necessarily have a trigger to start this whole process. Um, <clears throat> a lot of people don't understand that. So yeah, it was so normal. And that day was normal. You know, everyone, again, has this idea that, oh, someone takes their own life because they've had a really, really bad day or something really, really bad happened. And it's like, actually, it was a very normal day. And Sam was very normal during the day. Normal for obviously how he was then, you know, yeah. but he was incredibly normal. Like, there was no way I could have told you that that was going to happen that day. However, people sort of, We've got this thing where everyone says, oh, suicide is the silent killer. That silence is only allowed to exist by the fact that we don't have the tools to hear it, right? So that's the, the, the thing that I try and work on is like, yes, suicide is a silent killer, but it's only silent if you're, if you're not given the tools to actually listen to it. Because now I know what to look for. And now I know, and I've sort of tuned into the right frequency they say it's a silent killer then why can't i stop hearing it it's everywhere it's everywhere right and this is what i'm trying to do with my campaigning now is like hold on yes it's silent to most people but that's only because they are not asking the right questions and they're not looking in the right places and they're not you know we say the statistics you know we're just not concentrating on the right things um and if we enable people to to understand and to listen and to ask the right questions and to notice and to intervene. I guarantee you, if you get those tools, you will realize that actually nothing about suicide is silent. And actually the entire experience of suicide from the moment they start struggling is screams. It screams with obvious signs. But the problem is people don't aren't given the education, the tools to actually do that. Um, but now I see that I want to be able to enable those conversations and to sort of unenable the silence that, that gets put around it but you, you mentioned the statistics i think you know you, you can't read six and a half thousand and and ugh, it's just awful it's absolutely awful and as someone that's been one of those statistics you know having to have dealt with just one i can tell you the ripple effect that that one person has is just absolutely it's just incalculable how far that goes and the number of the number of tears, man, and the number, the trauma, not just my family, but Sam's friends, my friends, his whole school, the, the ripples go so, so far. And so when you're in my position and you see, you know, 6,500, 6,000 or, you know, whatever the number is at the moment, you just, you don't see it as, as 6,500. I frankly, I see it as, as hundreds of thousands of people that are affected by this, hundreds of thousands every single year. You know, if you, if you scale it up, you're talking probably about a million people have been affected by suicide um, since Sam died. Uh, it's just, it's, it's horrendous. It's absolutely horrendous. Um, so yeah, it's, it might be 6,000, but I can guarantee you that the, the impact is in the, is in the six, seven digits. So I want to go back to something you said uh, at, the, at the beginning of that answer, because it was interesting to me, which is that 
And it's true, right? There is this misconception that mental health is a symptom of something going wrong somewhere down the line. And this in and of itself causes almost this double-edged stigma. Double-edged in the sense that on the one hand, those who are suffering with a mental health issue feel as if they are somehow at fault or inadequate and therefore that suppresses um, any ability to talk about it. But also, I mean, I've had friends who have reflected on their conversation with other people who are suffering with a mental health issue as if, oh, that's no, that's to be avoided. We can't talk about that because I don't want to delve into this person's backstory as if there's always Mm. a backstory there, right? How do we remove this stigma before we even go into actually having one-on-one conversations, just accepting that this is in the same way that any other illness comes about, a thing that happens to you and not something that is a marker that you are in some way broken. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, so many people expect there to be a lot of triggers. And actually, you know what? I think this expectation that mental health, mental illness has to come from something, um, I think makes people that are struggling, and I can't talk to this, you know, I haven't struggled. I don't know what it is, but I can I can reflect on the conversations I've had and I think actually what it does is creates this and you, you hit it right you hit it so well just there is this inadequacy as a person as yourself because if you can't locate a trigger or the cause for your suffering then the only trigger and cause you can identify is that you are broken as a human being and that just opens the floodgates on some incredibly difficult emotions like guilt and shame and all this awful stuff um and self-esteem and, and all of that. So yeah, I think we need to move away from that. You know, what I've tried to break it down in the book actually is, is talk about talk about the brain chemistry behind it. You know, in the same way that you know you can have so many issues with the organs of your body, you can have a very slight difference in the the percentage of neurotransmitters being released or an inhibition to to uh, to release serotonin um, or a slightly higher number of enzymes that break down serotonin and, and that can create so much trigger and as soon as you can sort of understand that actually no I'm not I'm not broken as a human being I've just I've just got exactly like a, a kidney that's not working is not able to, to perform its job efficiently you know in a lot of cases with people with mental illnesses they just have a brain that is maybe just struggling to uh, to produce the right number of neurotransmitters to inhibit the right number of neurotransmitters and that's it the, you know chemicals i find the brain absolutely fun fascinating how all of our experiences our entire outlook on the world can really be drawn back to a, a, a chemical that's released um it, it is fascinating but that's it's such a good point there's nothing wrong with you as a person for struggling and actually you know, I, I'm a huge believer in we as people, and I'm sure we'll get onto sort of what I've learned through this journey later, but I'm a huge believer in the fact that we as people are shaped not necessarily by our successes, but by our hardship. You know, you, if you're successful your whole life, you're, you're not going to be a very, uh, you're not going to, you're not going to have grown at all as a person. We're shaped by what we go through. And if you go through mental illness, if you go through struggles in your life, you are one hell of a person. You are you are an incredibly, incredibly brave, strong person to have gone through that. And a lot of the time, mental illness makes you feel shame, makes you feel alone, makes you feel broken, makes you feel weak. A lot of people label people that are struggling as weak. That could not be further from the case. Um, everyone I've met, regardless of how well they're coping, um, they've been absolutely incredible individuals and have inspired me so, so much because you are you are defined by your hardship and how you cope with that. And if you are still here, having had a mental health issue, then yeah, that's that's an incredible marker as you as a person. 
had a epiphany whilst brushing my teeth this morning and listening to part of your audiobook. Um, not to turn this into <laughs> self therapy for a moment, but it was um, it was quite profound actually because I look back at uh, so I'm 26 now. I look back at when I was like 20, 21. Um, and we as a family were going through some difficulties. My dad had some fairly significant, but so far undiagnosed health issues. It was an incredibly stressful environment. Lots was going wrong. And I was young, right? As in, I look back now and I, I thought I was a big adult then. I was definitely not. And there was a good like six month period. And don't get me wrong, I wouldn't plot this on a spectrum of it was a mental health illness because frankly it wasn't. However, there was a good six month period where for like no logical reason, I would just sometimes stay in bed all day and I would constantly like eat shit and not go outdoors. And uh, when I do nights out, I drink far, far, far too much and I just wouldn't be productive. And because of that stigma that we just spoke about, the only conclusion I could come to is I'm just a shit person. Like this is all just my fucking fault. Like I am just being weak. Um, and so to imagine that, but yeah. magnified with somebody who is actually going through a, a prolonged illness is actually just quite scary, right? Because we're taught to blame ourselves and not talk about it. Yeah. And laziness. Everyone labels that as laziness. Like, come on. It's not, that's not lazy. You're struggling. You know, you don't go to a, to the intensive care ward in a hospital and go, <laughs> look at all these lazy people lying down. <laughs> you don't do that. It's the same as if you plugged yourself into chemo because you've got massive cancer, you would not feel guilty about the fact that you're not going for a half marathon run. It's exactly the same thing. You know, people have, our internal conversations are so, so negative. And when it comes to mental health, it, it, because of the symptoms of what you're going through, you know, even even very minor things like a breakup or exhaustion, it just make it automatically makes your brain focus on negative things. And that negative thing, for a lot of the time, is focusing on yourself. And so you start calling yourself lazy and all of this stuff. And you know what that does? It spirals it down. Because if you're having a hard day and you lie in bed all day, and then you feel guilty for not doing something, and you feel shame for doing that, and then you think you're an inadequate person, guess what that's going to do? It's going to make you feel worse. And you're just going to lie in bed and feel sorry for yourself and, and, and feel even worse. That is absolutely untrue. And I always think if you, the only reason you should feel guilt or shame in life is if you've hurt someone and you've done something wrong. And if you're in bed because you've had a bad day, I always ask myself this when I, when I feel feelings of, of guilt or shame coming on. I always go, have I hurt anyone? No. So that's a misplaced guilt and it's a misplaced shame because you haven't hurt anyone and the guilt you're feeling is is a guilt based on some some expectation of you to be constantly doing or constantly you know trying to be the best self and all this motivational stuff you see that's a misplaced guilt and i i would encourage everyone actually and we talk about guilt and shame in the book because it's something i really faced especially given you know the argument i had with my brother just before he died that was crippling guilt and shame that was absolutely horrendous um but if you haven't hurt anyone and you haven't done anything wrong then you don't deserve to feel guilty or shame, shameful because you haven't done anything wrong. And so often you can interrupt that thought by going, okay, I feel guilty for lying in bed. Who have I hurt? What have I done wrong? Oh, nothing. Okay. And then you can sort of readjust your moral compass or your, your sort of mental health compass um, to, to calibrate it a little bit because we're so quick to be so self-critical, uh, especially when it comes to mental health. And actually, if you need a if you need a day in bed, your your brain has existed for millions of years. Not personally, but like our brains, they've existed for millions and millions of years. They've done a really really good job at keeping us alive, and not just keeping us alive, but thriving in this world. It knows what it's doing, and if it if it wants to give you a day in bed, it knows 
fuck really well that you, that you deserve a day in bed and you need to rest. Um, uh, so, so listen to that. Don't feel guilty for it. Um, but I know how easy it is to do that because I, I do that quite a lot. So I want to go on to that, that phrase, guilt and shame, actually, because like you say, it's something you speak about in the book. And I was listening a few days back to your conversation with Jamie Lang um, and you speak about it in that conversation as well, how you took that feeling of guilt and shame that you felt um, and used it for like really massive good. So talk to me about that crossroads, right? You're, you're coming to terms with the death of your brother and you have this realization that you need to be the person to do something. Yeah, so this is such a difficult one because there were so many reasons that I started campaigning. Um, and, you know, I could I could very much pretend to be the hero here and be like, oh, I want to save all these people. And look, I absolutely love being able to help. I do. Um, I've always been like that. I've always had huge amounts of empathy for people. I've always tried to help people um, that, are, that are going through hard times. I've just always been like that. But I that's not the reason I did this. <laughs> and it's, it seems really weird. But the only reason I wanted to help people was because I was desperate to do something positive and I was desperate to, to do something for myself. Um, it, was an, it was a very selfish decision to start campaigning and do all this, right? It was so selfish and not, not in a bad way, you know, selfish gets a really bad rep, but actually being selfish sometimes is a good thing. Um, so I started it because this, this guilt and shame, um, I, know I was at, that, at this point in time, imagine I've just, I've just lost my brother I've, you know, a couple of weeks later, I sort of remembered the last conversation I had with him while he was alive. I remember that I had a go at him. Um, the last thing I ever said to him while he was alive was fuck off. So I was there just intoxicated by grief, uh, uh, guilt and shame, absolutely intoxicated by the idea that I was the person that had killed him. And uh, I genuinely believed that. And so everyone around me, everyone that was coming to my house and giving us flowers and crying and all the people at school that were crying, like every time I saw that, although I didn't show it on the outside, internally, the messages I was sending myself were horrific, horrific, because I genuinely believed that I'd caused all this. And it was awful, absolutely awful. And so for me, there were lots of reasons why I wanted to start campaigning. One, I needed something positive to do that wasn't what I call like um, ceremonial grief, ceremonial sadness. I just didn't want to be sad anymore. I want to do something positive. But also, I just wanted to do something that showed me that actually I was doing something good um, and I wasn't such a bad person. I was, almost felt like I owed a debt to the world um, to do something good. Um, and obviously, you know, I've, I've got to a point now where I, I can understand that and I can reflect and I've been through a lot of counselling, a lot of therapy to re, like I said, recalibrate that internal, internal compass to understand that actually that was misplaced guilt because I hadn't done anything wrong because that is an argument that anyone could have with anyone at any time, any moment of the day. Um, and so it's, it's taken a lot, a long time to get to that point. But now, obviously, you know, in the mental health space, it's absolutely fueled by this idea that that I really believe that this is a very solvable issue. Um, and I've, I've, I think there's so much progress we can make here to really have impact with millions of people's lives every year. Um, and the idea of being able to help that many people even though I couldn't help my brother and we couldn't go back and help him, that excites me so, so much because yeah, no one deserves to go through what Sam went through and certainly no one deserves to go through what I went through. It was absolutely horrific. Um, and so the campaigning now is, you know, oh, let's, let's do my best. You know, if I could have a legacy for my life, then I'd love to be able to help stop that from happening to someone else um, and, and give them the life that my brother wasn't able to have. Um, 
And so just, just a bit of a departure because it's just popped into my mind actually at that crossroads um, when you kind of went from being uh, in the middle of this situation to putting yourself out there to be in the middle of other people's situations for want of a better phrase. Um, you gave a talk to your school, didn't you? And the messages that were coming in switched from, I'm so sorry for what you've gone through to mm. here's what I'm going through. Um, I guess two-pronged question, thinking out loud here because I didn't plan to ask this. Firstly, just tell me about that, like when you saw this tidal wave and realized that this was a real thing. But then secondly, does does that continue to this day, right? You're you're on a platform now where people know that you're the guy who's enacting change. Does the pressure become a lot? Do you have an expectation from others, rightly or wrongly, where people can open up to you? And, you know, there's there's this kind of never-ending DM requests of issues. Yeah, so absolutely, you're so right. So, I mean, the converse, the, the message I was receiving, when anyone loses someone, the messages you'll all receive is, really sorry to hear what's happened, let me know if you need help. And I did this talk to school, and it was absolutely incredible how quickly those messages changed and became, I'm not okay, I need help. And the number of people at my school that told me about diagnoses they had and, and the fact what they were going through, I stood back and I was like, oh my goodness, this is absolutely shocking. And that was sort of when I realised I could help and do something good. Um, and but yeah i do get a lot of this and it was very difficult at the time because it was quite scary um and it's not something i've really spoken about before but like friends of mine were going through some really hard times that i didn't know about and when you go through trauma or grief your brain becomes hyper aware of the danger of it of having to be going through something similar again so when a lot of these people were telling me stuff like this actually the the main the main emotion that came out for me was actually like terror um i was really really scared that i was gonna have to do it again with a friend and i just i i said this to someone actually back in the day i was like i can't do this again when someone i knew was like was talking about like how they'd been suicidal i was i went to a friend i was like seriously i'm not going to survive doing this again um and so i guess there were lots of like i said there were lots of reasons for starting this but it was like I wanted to not, I wanted to protect myself. I wanted them to get the help they needed so I didn't have to go through it again. Because I genuinely, I don't think I would have survived going through that again, knowing how hard it was, you know, for one time. Um, it was absolutely awful. But um, in terms of what I get now, yeah, loads, absolutely loads. Um, and it, 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 on the face of it, people would like, because I get DMs that are, oh, like 500 words long, absolutely like whole books in my dms and a lot of people might hear that and go oh that's that must be such a burden blah 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 blah. but and yes it's you know it's a lot to have to deal with and it's a lot to have to read but you know I, in my job you don't get performance you don't get like performance reviews at the end of this uh, end of the quarter you don't get anything to tell you you're doing a good job especially when you're ne not necessarily enacting governmental change if it hasn't happened you're like you could very easily be like oh, well we're not doing anything to look at DMs of people that are pouring their absolute heart and soul out to you and being incredibly vulnerable and incredibly brave. That, that's sort of how I look at my performance review <laughs> in a weird way, because let's face it, I wouldn't be able to do any of what I did if I didn't listen to people. And I've made it an absolute priority for me to just open my ears, listen to what's going on. And I was, I, I was, at, the, I was at a book fair the other day and a group of mental health nurses came over to me and we had a really, really long chat about, you know, the pressures in the mental health service. And it was a really deep chat about that. And then in the same, in the same, you know, 10 minutes, the next person that came up was 
with someone that's been, you know, in a mental health unit for a year and a half, um, has been deeply, deeply suicidal, has extreme amount of, of, um, of problems that he's had to face and was telling this like I had, like, like I'd known him my entire life. And I was a deep, deep trusted friend. And I just, I absolutely love the idea that someone has enough trust in me to tell me stuff that they probably haven't told anyone else in their life, you know? Um, and if I can try and, you know, I, I'm not going to say I, I reply to everyone. I, I don't, you know, I'm not in a position where I can offer clinical support and I don't think it's ethical for me to reply, but I do love the fact that people feel able to do that. And that shapes everything I do. It shapes all the conversations I have. It shapes my knowledge of this subject. It shapes every, I'm going to parliament next week. It's definitely going to shape everything I'm saying there. And that is an amazing thing because there is very little, there is very, there are very few feelings in life like the satisfaction you get when you can make someone feel a bit better or give someone a bit of hope when they have none. Like a lot of people in life, especially nowadays, are driven by money and success and fame. Like if I can, if I can make someone feel better uh, or give them some hope and give them a few extra days just to, just to get through what they're going through. Yeah, that, uh, there was absolutely no there was no greater feeling than that. And people, one of the most common questions I get asked in, in podcasts actually is what's the, been the best moment for you? And everyone, everyone always thinks that some lights, camera action, standing in ITV studios with Prince William and all this stuff. I was like, Oh, it must've been so amazing. And yeah, that was really cool. But by far the best moment for me in the last four years hasn't been anything anyone's seen. It is a private moment to myself where I just, can't stop myself from smiling because I've actually been able to help someone. Um, there isn't, I can't describe that feeling. It's just an incredible feeling, especially coming from where this has come from. Um, it's, uh, it's satisfaction. Like I will, I will never ever experience in anything else in my life. Um, and that's what drives me now. Um, it's, and, and if I can have those conversations with people, then bring it on. I, I'd love, I absolutely love the fact that people feel comfortable saying that to me. So this is an interesting connection to something you speak about a lot, which is, of course, the importance of conversations. But you make a point that seems obvious once you've said it, but ironically isn't spoken about enough, which is this idea that, um, you know, mental health awareness periods roll around and everyone says, right, guys, we just need to speak some more. As if that's like the easiest and most natural thing for somebody who's going through a struggle already with all of the pressures yeah. that we've just spoken about to just be like, yeah, okay, a, a hashtag has told me I'm going to talk. So now I'm going to talk. So that's evidently not the answer. There is an onus on all of us to create these conversations, right? So I'm sure everyone listening wants to create those conversations to have those moments where they feel like they can help a friend or a family member. How do we go about doing it? Yeah, this is such a good point, you know, because the the narrative has been, oh, just talk about it. Just talk about it. Talk about your mental health. Talk about your mental health everywhere. And I'm like, mate, if you start actually listening to people and asking the right questions, you realize that the fact they the, telling people to talk is just the totally the opposite of what we need to be saying in this narrative. You know, telling someone that cannot get themselves out of bed to go to work because of their mania and their panic attacks telling them to simply talk about it is is like telling a heart disease patient to eat their five a day it's like okay that's great thank you that's i'll take that on board but it's not actually going to help but what the difference is and, and you know the, the different narrative that i want to push is don't stop telling everyone to talk 
and teach people how to listen and to ask those questions because listening is it's crazy isn't it that we listen every single day to conversations and to people but we never really listen <laughs> um we the, the the very the very subtle difference between active listening which is when you're really engaged in what that person's saying and normal conversational listening is in conversation often we're not listening to the words people are using to talk to us we're actually waiting for them to finish their sentence so we can add our bit so you're not waiting for to hear what they're saying you're actually waiting for the moment you can give your opinion on something um so you sort of listen to their conversation or what they're saying to you for context and for what they're talking about and then you're just waiting for where it's wrapping up and i'm the worst for this i'm the worst for finishing people's sentences because i'm waiting for a little little slow down their phrase so i can jump in and finish off and it's just with that's how we've been wired in conversation but active listening really letting someone talk and listening to every single word and analyzing and listening listening very very carefully to them it's a skill that's very, very easy to learn. And it's a skill that is ex exceptionally easy to engage with. And um, because all it really is, is asking an open-ended question. How does, how does losing that, how does losing your job make you feel? Or, you know, open-ended questions like, you know, what would you do if, if, if you could wave a magic wand and make everything okay right now, what would change? So, uh, open-ended questions and then sit there and listen, just listen to every single word they say. Um, it's an incredibly important skill. But let's stop telling people to talk and start telling people to listen and teaching people to listen. And also, I'm of the opinion that the people struggling with their mental health should be the last people to talk. Because everyone's always like, let's normalise mental health, let's normalise mental health. And then the entire room goes silent, waiting for the person that's struggling to talk first. And you're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> that's not how it works. If we want to normalise mental health and get people talking, then the people that aren't struggling need to be talking. You know, I need to be talking. If you've had a bad day, tell people. If you're going for a breakup, be honest about it. And that's how we normalize this. It's us talking. Because exactly like I found, vulnerability is infectious. So if you can stand in front of the whole school like I did and be so vulnerable and cry and do all this stuff, and I have no idea how I managed to do that in that mindset, but I did, you'll find that everyone looks at you as a safe person. And I've got it now. Me talking about my mental health and mental health in general on social media. The stuff that people feel able to share, not even anonymously, you know, it, it's absolutely incredible. And if we can, we can put that into society and get vulnerability everywhere and CEOs need to stop investing money into mental health first aiders and all of this stuff and, and all of this stuff and, and focus actually on if you're a CEO that goes out and goes, this is my story. These are my struggles. I have depression. I've done this. This is, this is my experience with grief. Oh my goodness, you will see a culture change in that workplace immediately. Um, and this is the thing that people don't understand. They go, let's talk about mental health and then everyone goes quiet. And we're not going to change anything doing that. But obviously, you know, it ties back to what I'm doing. And you can't say, let's all listen and, and not have some sort of education on how to do that, which is why I think it needs to be absolutely ingrained into into education at schools so i kind of learned this indirectly a few months back i read a book by somebody called jessica pan called sorry i'm late i didn't want to come and it's this idea of this uh she's an introvert and she wants to become more extroverted and so she went through this year-long journey of putting herself through crazy experiences to just force the issue right um and i felt like i kind of trod the line somewhere yeah. between the two so i thought i'm gonna read this book see what i take from it and the biggest lesson i took from it is that um the, the importance of self-disclosure 
the idea that it's all well and good waiting for people to come and tell you something or have a conversation but the second you're even 10 percent more vulnerable than you'd usually be in a conversation whether or not you suspect something's wrong with somebody i thought that that mechanism would give me like some small talk on the bus but like it has literally changed the fundamental level of conversations i have with everybody yeah. um and you know that's why in a way this conversation is so timely and apt because i didn't realize the scale of what's going on with mental health until i started subtly encouraging these conversations and everybody has a bloody story so if somebody wants to be better at being a conversationalist that facilitates these conversations that makes somebody feel comfortable or maybe you suspect that a friend or family member wants a conversation what are some good openers to kind of tease it open and see if it's something that they're ready to speak about Yeah, it's so hard, you know, it's really, really, this is the first thing I'll say is people get very scared of doing this because it's a very hard thing to do. And it is hard, like approaching someone, having that conversation, knowing someone's struggling and talking to them is an exceptionally hard thing to do. And getting to that point, a lot of people beat themselves up for not being able to do that or not being able to ask the right question or not knowing what to do. Like, don't give yourself a break because it is incredibly hard to do that. And it takes a huge amount of strength and bravery and courage to do that. Um, but it's really important to do. And so some of the things I'd say is, I don't actually have a mug with me, but I, I have this thing called cup of tea, one, two, three. If you want to have an honest conversation with someone, get a mug of tea in their hands, okay? Because as soon as you have a mug of tea or a mug of coffee or a mug of hot chocolate or something in your hand, it could even be a glass of water. Having something in your hands, it's a really weird psychological thing that you feel a little bit safer doing this. So get them over have a cup of tea, have a mug of coffee, whatever. And I, and then comes the one, two, three, count to three. And I think just go in, say one, two, three, not out loud in your head <laughs> and count yourself in and go, I've noticed this. I really want to talk to you about it. Um, what's been, what's been going on or is it, or another way of phrasing it is, is there anything you want to get off your chest? And then, you know, maybe they'll want to share and that's great. And if they, they, if they sort of feel reluctant, then maybe you can talk about it. Like, oh, I was, maybe you can be vulnerable. Like, oh, I was going through this difficult thing as well. And, and it's, uh, it's, it's always good to talk about blah, 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 and be vulnerable yourself. But it's hard. It's really, really hard. And there's so loads of research, resources online about this. And there's obviously my book, which talks a lot about it as well and, and gives a lot of openers and different things you can do. But I would say for people, like, it's not an easy thing to do. It really, really isn't. Um, look, I didn't do it um, when I needed to. Uh, and that's exactly so I can empathize with people that, that are in that position. But mug, cup of tea, one, two, three. Tea is like honesty juice. It just makes people feel at ease and relaxed. Um, but the biggest thing is just make yourself into a safe person. You know, if you were approaching you to have a conversation about the worst part of your life, what would make you feel more comfortable talking to you? You're, you're not going to want to talk to you if you if you feel like there's there's a coldness to it. Be warm, be vulnerable, and try and make yourself safe and inviting. And then I guarantee you, you ask the right questions, ask open-ended questions, and you will you will make progress and you will hear them. And also, I would just say, people are put off by this because they have some expectation to fix everything right? If you approach someone to talk about their mental health, you are not expected to give them advice. In fact, I think most people struggling with their mental health are not looking to go to a friend for advice. Because a great way of looking at it is the person that's struggling is the expert 
of their situation. You aren't. You have no idea. You're learning about their situation. They're the experts. So your job is not to give them advice of this is what you should do, or this is the person you should talk to, or you should go and talk to this helpline, or this is the, you know, go for a run, do this, blah, blah, blah. Don't tell them what to do. Let them discover what to do by being a sounding board and not giving advice, but exploring how they're feeling and what they think they should do. You know, maybe it gets to the point in the conversation where you're like, so what do you think the next steps are? Or you know, in a perfect world, what would happen next? Those sorts of questions, let them do it. And I think that takes a huge amount of pressure off people because let's face it, it's terrifying. Uh, I've spoken to a, to a PT in a gym who had a, a client um, disclose they were, they were suffering with body dysmorphia. And he was like, what do I do? <laughs> I don't know what to say to this person. I've got absolutely no idea. And I said, it's not about, it's not about what you say to them. It's about how you make them feel um, and, and, and how you, much you can learn and give them a safe space to, to talk about it. Um, but it's difficult and I do empathize with that. It's very, 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 very difficult because you just constantly think you're the wrong person to be doing it. But if they've come to you or if you're a family friend or, you know, someone that's close to them, you're absolutely the right person to do it. And the sooner they are able to talk about it, the sooner they can come up with their next steps. And those next steps might be going to the doctor, going to therapy, speaking to someone else. It's a very, very important intervention to make. And the beautiful thing about it is every single one of us can be that intervention and i think that's an incredible thing you have a rule of thumb don't you that if you think that something is up with somebody assume you're the only person who feels that way assume you're the only person who has spotted a sign and don't uh, outsource that responsibility to somebody else that seems quite powerful yeah i think so again it's like this whole fear thing and often when we're like oh you don't really want to do it because it's quite scary. You'll go, oh, someone else will someone else do it. Or you go, oh, I'm not that close with them. Without someone else will do it. Uh, it's difficult because obviously if you're not <laughs> in a close enough relationship, that would be acceptable and, and, and they'd feel safe, then it's not going to be a very helpful conversation. But I always have a rule of thumb. In the same way, if you're walking down the street and someone was having a stroke uh, or someone had fallen over and was unconscious, you wouldn't be like, but I don't know them. I'm not going to ask. <laughs> um, you'd assume you're the only person that sees that they are unconscious on the pavement and you'd go over and check that they're okay. Uh, exactly the same thing, I think, occurs in mental health. You know, if you see someone that's having a breakdown or in a, in a, you know, obviously having a difficult time or, or not wanting to do with the things they're doing or showing any signs that they are not happy, treat it like you would an unconscious person on the pavement. Just go and have that conversation. And genuinely, if you can do that, and ingrain that into your life, you become such an incredible Samaritan and such an incredible gift to this society and to our world. And it's a very easy thing to do because all you're doing is looking out, intervening, and you don't need fancy training and fancy certificates to do this. You just need to be a caring person who makes someone feel safe and offers an ear um, and, and allows them to, to feel a little bit more control in a difficult moment. Um, and I, I, I just repeat it. Like I think it's a beautiful thing that every single one of us has the power to do that. Um, but yeah, you wouldn't ignore the unconscious person because they they were some distant relative. Like <laughs> you'd go and you'd go and check. And I think it's exactly the same thing here. 
I was just frantically Googling as you were talking there because if there's one thing I'm great at on this podcast, it is butchering citations and referring to studies kind of in a half-assed way. So I was just trying to find the name of it. Um, when you were speaking about the, the analogy of passing somebody injured in the street, right? There's this famous study from, I believe, New York uh, a few years back now where um, somebody was being murdered on a street and then the police did this investigation and they heard that within earshot of this person calling for help, there was something like 26 people who heard and could have helped but didn't, right? And so the, the phenomenon is called the bystander effect and the antidote mm. to this, we're told, is if you're in a physical situation in public, you should point to a singular person and say, you, I need you to help and do this. We can almost invert that with what you're saying here, which is you have to assume that you are the person who is being told it is you if you suspect something, right? Yeah, 100%. I absolutely agree with that. I think, yeah, it's, it is the bystander effect. All of this is because you're like, oh, someone else did it, someone else did it. I think as long if you can understand the responsibility that you have and the position that you have, then that's a powerful thing. But obviously, it's very difficult. It's very, very difficult to do that. Um, but yeah, absolutely. I think being able to recognize that responsibility, but also, you know, especially when it comes to mental health, unlike a person calling for help on the pavement, not many people will notice that there's something bad going on. Even if someone is very obviously highly emotional, a lot of people will just brush over it um, and ignore it. Not because they are ignoring it per se they just don't think it's a reason to be concerned if you are the one that notices that maybe this is something to investigate i'd say you're probably in the minority in a lot of cases so there we go there's the responsibility i just think if you're ever if you're ever questioning whether someone is okay i just think why not ask <laughs> you know because they could turn around and be like oh, it's actually fine i'm just feeling really emotional this morning i don't know what it is train was late had a really bad morning blah 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 could be that or they could just just be diagnosed or they could have just lost their granddad or they could have lost their mom or something just ask i think that's an incredible thing to do but you're absolutely right being able to recognize that responsibility and that position and obviously you know to to sort of add to this i think being self-aware in this situation is really important as well and knowing when you can help um because unlike asking someone unconscious on the street whether they're okay having these conversations can be quite a big burden to have to and a lot of weight to carry um and you know you've got to look after yourself as well which is really important um but i do think you know if we're really serious about tackling mental health and, and mental health issues and, and stopping people from getting to a point of suicide intervention 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 and that goes for schools that goes for the nhs and that goes for every single person out there um we can all we can all be tools in early intervention not it's not just some nhs department it is every single one of us um and that's the responsibility we have going forward um and i think that's actually an, an incredibly powerful position to hold if you can recognize that um so that's what i encourage people uh, to do is just ask just ask so another part of this puzzle is the the stigma and the cultural norms. And we were speaking just before um, we started recording about this Daily Mail piece, which I think you haven't seen, but it's been doing the rounds on Twitter. Um, so I'm just going to pull it up and read you the headline and a little okay. quote from it, right? So the headline is, UK builders go woke in capital letters. Study finds three quarters of tradesmen discuss their feelings with colleagues as if this is a crazy revelation. And then it says, quote, modern tradesmen are sensitive souls, more likely to enjoy yoga, muesli, listening to Radio 4 and sharing their feelings, a survey has found. Now, you're out here trying to encourage these conversations, including those between young men who are disproportionately more likely to die by suicide in an industry such as builders which leaves them even more pre-exposed to die by suicide 
And then we've got a major newspaper calling that phenomenon woke and comparing it to eating muesli. When you're doing all that you do and that comes out two days ago, how does that make you feel? Okay, I'm mixed emotions to this. I think what they're trying to insinuate is really damaging. But you take letter by letter what they're actually saying in that headline. How amazing is that, that builders feel comfortable doing that? So it's such a badly stigmatized area that in the past has been the worst for mental health discussions. I've worked with people that have gone into, into construction companies and tried to speak to builders about this stuff. It is like taking a splinter out. It's really, really difficult to get through. So on the surface, I'm like, brilliant. That is really, really good progress. And it's always nice to see that, that there is progress happening here. The fact that it tries to insinuate it as a bad thing, because that's what they're doing, right? There's a very conscious thing they're doing to try and make it look like, oh, builders are going soft or whatever. That's really damaging. And it's, it's really difficult when you make so much progress and people like this are making articles and putting things into the media or saying things on socials that just tear everything down um, and just reignite this stigma. Because you know what? How many builders are going to get the response from that article and be like, oh, maybe I am getting a bit soft, whatever that means. Um, it's, it's just so bad. But you know what? You know what really annoys me is the same paper will, you know, will absolutely rejoice at any mental health activist like myself, and they have in the past written article, incredibly endorsing articles of me and my work, and then they'll go and do this. It's double standards, and it has no place in society, absolutely no place in society. And I, I, I do think there should be so much more heavily, heavily, um, heavy regulation of what is allowed to be published and not and isn't. I think anything that that's like this is just so damaging. If you printed your paper on carcinogenic paper that caused cancer you would be in a lot of trouble. But if you're printing the words on that paper that is contributing to illness and contributing to death and contributing to a stigma, then why the hell are you not facing the same repercussions? Because the actual impact in terms of death, I think is probably similar to printing on carcinogenic paper. But because it's mental health, suddenly we don't understand it and suddenly it's not a problem. You know, if you're actually causing risk to someone's life or, or contributing to a risk to someone's life, you have a responsibility to be stopped um, and to have that regulated. So that's my mind on that article. Um, but I do think actually fantastic, absolutely fantastic that builders are talking about it, being emotional, because that is so great. Because let's face it, what is, when you think of a man, it's a builder man, isn't it? It's it's builders. They are the, the epitome of manly men, scaffolders and all this. Now I, I still get so, I, my voice changes when I go to like the garage or when builders are around. It's just so weird, isn't it? You almost feel like just a weird atmosphere in the presence of them. Um, but so to see that there is change within that industry, I think is a fantastic thing. Also, muesli is really nice. So <laughs> I don't see the problem with muesli <laughs> at all. I love a muesli. Something else that was encouraging in that piece, um, I'll be honest, it's been a few years since I've read Daily Mail comments, although I know that Daily Mail comments are normally terrible and it's just the worst takes ever, constantly copy and pasted 400 times over. Um, but I read the comments of that this morning whilst uh, considering this conversation. And even those who live in the Daily Mail comments are all disagreeing with the stance of that take. So if that isn't a, a signifier that there is a cultural understanding here that, mm. you know, there is a conversation to be had here and it's not this one. Um, I've never felt more reassured by Daily Mail comments in my life. 
That's really good as well. See, this is the thing, and I'm really conscious of this as well within the mental health spaces. It's very, very easy to get drawn into the, oh, everything's shit, it's all bad, it's all bad, it's all bad. There's some really good progress happening. And this is what I what I really get quite excited about. Like in my job, people say, oh, how do you even how do you even cope with reading all this stuff and hearing all these stories all the time? I wouldn't. I don't think I would if there wasn't an equal dose of hope and happiness and happy stories. There were some really, really positive things happening. I'm involved in a few things that are happening at the moment that are hugely positive and gonna have massive impacts on people's lives. This I said this earlier. I truly think the mental health emergency and the mental health crisis we're in the moment is an incredibly solvable issue. It's incredibly solvable. And I don't think it's going to take like a huge amount of, um, well, that's a lie. It's going to take a huge amount of work. But the work is beginning, right? It's not going to take some monumental discovery. It is small things, little small implication introductions that we can make that are going to change the landscape of this. I don't think if we do the right things now, I don't think in a gen- in in you know, when I'm dead, I don't think we'll be discussing the mental health crisis. I think it will be an issue, certainly. I don't think it will be an emergency or a crisis to the level we're seeing at the moment. I think that that's a possibility. I think we can get to that level. And hey, I'm going to try my best to get us to that level, as well as the hundreds, thousands, millions of other advocates and, and, and charity people that are and, and nurses and, and mental health workers that are trying to do the same. I think it's really solvable, really, really solvable. Um, and I, I do think there's a lot of hope here and seeing stuff like this, the progress that we're making, people having conversations, industries that wouldn't necessarily be talking about this stuff, taking it full first uh, head on and, and having it, that just shows you how much progress we're making. And that's something to be excited about. It's something to be hopeful about. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it's something to, it's something to, it's like almost a, a peg in the, in the sand. We saw a, a way of measuring how far we've come because builders even a few years ago you wouldn't have seen a similar statistic or people backing it up in the daily mail so i love that i absolutely love that and it's it's one of, it's one of those things that gives you that dose of hope that we all need sometimes now of course as we've spoken about conversations can be effective societal changes are uh, important uh, but what role does government have to play here i know that lots of your campaigning has involved mps and prime ministers and wider government what can the government be doing better right now to help us overcome this mental health crisis? Yeah, I mean, look, it'll be very, very easy for me to sit here and, and say all sorts of things about what they are and aren't doing. Um, I think what needs to happen is very, very clear to, to me. I think if you are in touch, if you are in contact with children under the age of 18, I think as an absolute matter of standard, you should be mental health first aid trained. You know, I, I think that should absolutely be a safeguarding issue. I, I, I'm still bewildered at the fact that no one's bringing this up and I seem to be the only person talking about it because it seems absolutely absurd that you are allowed to teach a child and not understand mental health. I think that's absurd. You know, in the government, so uh, last September, the government made it a new, made a new statutory, statutory requirement for all key stage education PSHE lessons to include mental health education. Whoop, that's really good, actually. Really, really good progress on that. But in the uh, in their supporting guidance for that new law, they gave the reasons that they thought this cross the board mental health education, right the way from primary school all the way to second, end of secondary school, they gave their opinion on why that's important. And one of their points, and I talk about this in the book, one of their points was 
to enable children and young adults to to recognize mental health issues in their colleague in their peers and friends and have the conversations that are necessary to get help and i'm sitting there being like hold on you've changed the law to teach students about mental health because you recognize it's a really important thing for them to know about but teachers no 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 they can be left to work out themselves you're like sort of double standard come on why do teachers not need the same thing? If anyone needs to be better prepared to have those conversations, in my opinion, it is not children. It is the, the people that are, that are literally assigned to, well, to, to protect their well-being. You know, above most things, teachers' job is safeguarding and well-being and, and creating a, a functioning adults. I just don't see how you can do that without having mental health training. So that's one of the things I think should absolutely be happening. Um, and then, like I said, there's some really good projects going out. Um, the mental health teams that are connected to schools that are part of the NHS trusts, um, mental health hubs, early support hubs, all these things, absolutely fantastic. But it needs better backing. It needs better support. Um, it needs far, far, far more ambitious goals than it's given. Um there's a, you know, the, the, when you get into the whole emergency services thing, I think it needs a very, very fine look at the policy involved around mental health calls and mental health cases. Um, same with emergency departments. So much. There is so, so much. But what above all, I think what would change this is government ministers that talk about mental health because they want to find a solution not talking about it because they want to appear like they're doing the best they can. And there is a huge difference. Um, actually investing your time to help is very, very different to investing your time in looking like you're helping. And it's very obvious which one is being used at the moment. Um, and that's what I will say there. <laughs> um, but there are people in government that are fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. I'm meeting one of them soon in Parliament. You know, some of these politicians are fantastic. Um, and unfortunately, over the last few weeks and months, they've been given a sort of bad name. Some of them are so committed to helping other people. It is unreal. Um, and we just need them to be up front, centre, yeah, trying to find the solutions. Because they find solutions absolutely regardless of their own, of their own life and their own position and themselves. Um, they put the responsibility of their job beyond themselves. And I think... That's incredibly commendable. And we need far more politicians like that. Um, but there's lots of things that need to change. <laughs> A lot. So let's just, before we wrap up, I want to drill down into what somebody as an individual can do if they're watching or listening to this and they're struggling right now. Whether they're struggling because... Uh, they've had the realization that things are just a little bit difficult right now and they might struggle to get out of bed or whatever it might be or they're they're really close to the point where they feel like this is a big challenge um, i realized during my conversation with patrick foster that i keep referencing uh, that we spoke for an hour about gambling addiction and i didn't know what that episode was going to go on to do but it's had you know ten thousand plus views in a couple of months on youtube and just a tidal wave of comments of people who have found solace in that video and turned to it for assistance and i didn't offer the assistance in that video right and i'm not saying that i could fix the problem but i didn't even signpost there was no like go and do this next if somebody's watching this and this video for them is that moment where they're like yeah actually although i haven't spoken to anyone that i know maybe i want to start exploring the routes open to me do you have any signposting oh yeah you've come to the right place for signposting um look i think absolute best thing you can do i know we've sort of 
oh, let's talk about mental health. I know we've talked about that a lot and the, the complications of that. You know, it is really, really important that you do talk. And if you're struggling, it's very, very important that you reach out to someone. Obviously, I, I'm coming from an angle that more people should be reaching out to you before you're, you know, having to talk to someone. But if you're struggling, I cannot even begin to tell you the relief, the immediate release, the relief you get when you first console in someone and, and uh, confide in someone and actually talk to them about it. Like it's immediate, the relief. The relief. Um, have that conversation. In terms of where to go for actual support, again, we talk about the NHS and all of this stuff. The NHS is there. We've got a mental health service that is there to help and they do help people. You know, there are some incredible stories from the mental health service that don't get talked about enough. There are some incredible individuals that work in them that work incredibly hard to help people. Um, go to your GP, have that conversation with them. GPs talk about mental health all day, every day. It's one of the most common things they'll talk about. They are not going to be put off or scared or in most cases, they're not going to be awkward. You coming in and saying, I think I might have depression. This is how I've been feeling. That's something they are very, very good at dealing with and being able to then signpost you to NHS support, referrals to private support, um, get you onto waiting list, ATC. Really important you get that done earlier because obviously, as we all know, the waiting lists are quite long. Beyond that, though, there is an incredible charity sector in this country that offers support on gambling addiction, that will offer support on trauma therapy, will offer support on grief, will offer support on any issue you can imagine. There is someone out there that specialises in support for it. And trust me, because I've met some very obscure people that, that specialise in some incredibly obscure things that people go through. There's an incredible website called Hub of Hope. If you type in Hub of Hope into Google and type in your postcode in the UK, it will bring up all of the local services that are available to you. Um, that's NHS and, pri and private and charity sectors. And you can click on, you find information. So say I searched my my uh, my postcode in and I was going through grief. It w you can find all the specialised grief counsellors. Or if your marriage is breaking down, you have marriage counsellors, couple counsellors. Or you go through, or if you've you know, been sexually assaulted, there'll be people that specialise in, in support for, for um, you know, people, abuse victims on that amazing website. That is the, my absolute go-to for getting support or, and finding out what's in your local area. And there is a lot. You'd be surprised by how much there is for a lot of people um, that talk about it. And also, I'll just say, you're not weak. If you're struggling right now, things are really hard, especially with the cost of living increase, especially with all the stuff that's going on, a lot of pressure on people now. Um, it's very, very easy to look at yourself like a failure. We do that a lot. Um, but you know, there's absolutely nothing stronger than coming through hard times. There's nothing stronger than that. Um, and uh, yeah, you're certainly not weak. And even if you can survive a day when you want to die, you know, that's immense strength and something to be incredibly proud of. So I want to end with two questions. Let's begin with this one. The journey that you have so far been on, you've encountered a lot of people from all walks of life. What has this journey taught you about other people? taught me about other people oh, other people are amazing <laughs> it's taught me a huge amount about the resilience of the human spirit um i've met people that have had some very 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 bad stuff happen to them and they are motivated and they are so determined and they will they, you know they will probably be suicidal and, and in a really bad place but they are just utterly inspiring um and despite you know this despite this absolute relentless idea in their head of everyone around me is better off if I was dead. But despite that, they continue and see the next day. 
and they are just determined to get through it. But I absolutely, it is unbelievable. And sometimes you will feel like you're not one of those people and you're not resilient enough and you'll feel like you're not <laughs> anything special. Like I said, our brains have been around for a very, very long time. We are all 99.9% .9 exactly the same. But we are incredible species and incredible individuals. Um, it's taught me a lot about the resilience of the human mind and what we can actually endure. Um, and, and also, you know what else? Is how just how powerful community is. Um, and it's something I'm seeing a lot now is so many people feeling lonely and the stuff that can do to you. We are a sociable animal. We need community and friends. And when you, when you build a good community and you have good friends and, and family that you can trust and, and, you know, people in your life that you, that mean something to you and you can trust, I, it's incredible seeing that and the power that can have on how you're doing in your entire life. So yeah, I, I, so I find the whole psychology of human beings absolutely fascinating, but we are strong. We are strong, 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 very, very strong. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean we're stoic at all. Strong, actually, in my books, means breaking down in front of your colleagues at work or, uh, you know, having the actual strength to be vulnerable. Um, we're incredibly strong. And so something that strikes me uh, from your journey, and this is kind of where I want to leave things, is you've been incredibly selfless in everything you've done. And it, it might feel weird to take that praise, but like the evidence is there, right? You've done an incredible amount to create change that will probably outlive you, right? What has it taught you about yourself? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, you say I've been selfless. The way I see it, I don't, don't think I am. <laughs> um, I, 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 don't, I wouldn't put it down to some like mission of mine to, to do something good necessarily. I just think any any human being that speaks to someone that I speak to, that meets the friends of a, of a student that's just died and doesn't want to do something, I just don't think you, you're not human if you, if you don't have a knee-jerk reaction of wanting to help. And I'm just in a position now where I can help, and I love that. But the one thing, you know, the one thing that this has taught me and uh, about myself or maybe about the, what life really means, the meaning of life, how deep, I know. Um, yeah, like I said at the beginning, so many people put so much value on money and fame and jobs and cars and houses. You will never find satisfaction in anything like being able to make someone else feel better. Um, and I've just read an incredible book called When Breath Becomes Air that looks at the, the boundary between life and death and, and mortality um, and about the meaning of life. and one of the absolute takeaways of that and something I really have put into my life is it, at the end, when you're telling your life story, don't discount when you're talking about the stuff that you've done with your life and all the things you've achieved. Don't discount how you made people feel because actually in life, what's just, what's more important than the stuff that you've done is how you've made people feel. Um, and really for me, that's what I, I'm going to remember. And I don't care how much money I have or where I live or what I do. As long as you can have an impact positively on the people around you, um, I think that is an incredible gift to be able to have. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've learned. I've, I've learned the meaning of life. How, how deep to end on. <laughs> 
Amazing. Uh, ben West, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. I'm going to make sure that your book, uh, this book could save your life, breaking the silence around the mental health emergency is linked in the show notes below alongside those links that you spoke about. If people want to go elsewhere to find you whilst they're waiting for their book to arrive, because I hope they order it because it's incredible. Uh, where else can they go on the internet to find you? They can find me on the internet on all of the socials. My um, at is at I am Ben West. Um, I'm everywhere. If you look, I'll be there. Probably amazing thank you so much Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.